Many preachers out in the world lie to you. So-called celebrity pastors march into the bright lights of television to tell you that God wants to bless you financially, that He doesn't want you to suffer, and that God doesn't want you to be sick. With joy and glee, the naive and immature uh, gobble it up, not realizing that this message is not even Christian, it's actually satanic. And these preachers don't have categories to accurately explain the real world. If you suffer, you don't have enough faith. If you're sick, that means you haven't prayed properly because God wants you to be wealthy, you see. He wants you to be healthy. Maybe it is actually God's will for you to get sick. Maybe that's a category. Maybe it is God's will for you to suffer. And these preachers have no answers for you. When men march out against you, they have no answers for you. When God himself marches out against you, they have no answers for you. Today, we're going to be exploring one of the most profound mysteries of the Christian faith. How God not only uses our trials and afflictions, but often is the orchestrator and author of them, and he gives them to us as part of his good and righteous plans. And so let's get into it. I've got three points that I want to share with you guys. The first one is contending with man. My second point, striving with God. And my third point, prevailing with God and man. So let's get into it. First point, contending with man. Genesis 32. Jacob went on his way and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. So he called the name of that place Mahanaim. And Jacob sent messages before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing them, Thus shall you say to my lord Esau, Thus, your serv- thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants and female servants. I have sent to tell my lord in order that I may find favor in your sight. And the messages returned to Jacob saying, We came to your brother Esau and he is coming to meet you. And there are 400 men with him. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people who were with him and the flocks and herds and camels into two camps, thinking if Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. Well, you guys remember the story so far, how we've come through Genesis and we've seen this transformation of Jacob. We've seen that he's just wrestled with Laban. He's prevailed against Laban last week. His father-in-law had marched out against him. You remember with all his kinsmen, it looked like a battle was about to happen. He was marching out with blood and vengeance in his mind. Uh, And he'd overtaken Jacob, spurned on by rage. But what did we see? God proved himself faithful as always, right? He comes to Laban in a dream and says, be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. Now, if you ever have a dream where God says something like that to you, you may want to check your pants when you wake up. With one phrase, Laban was defanged. With one phrase, he was disarmed and he was forced to enter this humiliating covenant with his son-in-law, this upstart young man that he... And he had to return empty-handed. See you later, Laban. One conflict down, one more to go. Well, at least that's what Jacob thinks. Ahead of him is Esau. We remember Esau, the brother that Jacob had deceived. The brother that had vowed to kill Jacob. 
He's still got to deal with his brother. And he hasn't received any message about whether Esau's cool with him yet. Remember, his mom, Rebecca, was supposed to send him a message saying, it's all cool, you can come back. And that didn't happen. And he's coming back hoping that things are going to end up going well. And now here is Jacob at the very edge of the promised land, having just braved battle and wilderness, ready for his next trial. And as Jacob goes on his way, something remarkable happens. He is met by the angels of God. And it's one verse, and you may have overlooked it as we were reading it, but he's met by them. They are encamped around him, and in amazement, Jacob exclaims, this is God's camp. And he names it Mahanaim, which is a Hebrew phrase meaning two camps. And the first thing we think when we read this is, what is going on? What is happening here in the first verse of our passage? Without skipping a beat, the text moves on as if nothing had happened of the sort. It never talks about it again. It never deals with it again. And it leaves us scratching our heads trying to understand what is happening. Well, Jacob has great danger lying before him. And he's weak. He is vulnerable. And he is in grave danger. And Jacob understands here an important truth. God encamps around his saints. Psalm 34 verse 7 says, The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. If you trust in the Lord, God provides the strength and protection you need for every single trial that comes your way. For Jacob, this brief insight into the spiritual world has put some steel in his spine. It reaffirms to him the protection that only God can provide. And in this moment of quiet and peace, God prepares Jacob for the next hardship that he will face. Esau. How's Jacob going to handle his barbarian brother? Well, he's going to appeal to his brother's character. This This is his goal. He wants... Esau to forgive him. He wants Esau to overlook the wrongdoing that Jacob has done to him. So Jacob sends off some messages to Esau and Seir. And notice, I want you guys to notice this, Jacob does not have to do this. In fact, he doesn't have to go anywhere near Esau. All he has to do is travel, you know, a few hundred kilometers to the north and he could end up where he needs to end up and completely bypass Esau. But he doesn't do that. Why? Jacob's learning. Remember how he tried to take off without dealing with Laban? Do you remember where that got him? He still had to confront Laban. God still orchestrated it so that Laban came uh, into a conflict with him. And it's going to be the exact same here. He recognizes that he has to face Esau sooner or later. And he's learning. He's going to face his big brother. But notice the humility in the message that he sends. He calls himself Esau's servant. He refers to his big brother as Lord. Something that I'm sure would have made him thrown up, uh, throw up like 20 years ago, right? But he's learned a lot. He's been humbled. He updates Esau on what has happened to him all this time, and he hopes they can restore their bonds as kinsmen. It's kind of like a uh, long overdue postcard, I guess. And yet when the messages return, probably in haste and exhausted, the message they relay to Jacob makes the blood run out of his face says he is coming to meet you with 400 men. Angry men have good memories. Esau remembers well the treachery of his little brother Jacob, and he will have his vengeance. Nothing will satisfy Esau more than to gaze upon the ruin of his brother Jacob. 
to crush his men underfoot and to fill his camp with all of Jacob's spoil. This is what's in Esau's mind. He is marching out with rage and malice, intent on bloodshed and murder, and with him 400 men as brutal, ruthless and callous as their master, ready to shed blood at a word. No wonder the text tells us Jacob's reaction. It says then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. Yeah, I'd be the same. (laughs) 400 men of that caliber were marching out against me. Where can you run to? Where can you hide? And he must be thinking, Jacob probably at this point is thinking to himself, what on earth is God doing? I have gone all this way. I've traveled through wilderness. I've run away from my uncle. I've done everything that I'm supposed to doing. Has he brought me here only to die? Has he given me so much just to fall by the hands of my brother? And in panic, he separates his camps into two, thinking, you know, if Esau attacks one, the other might end up being able to escape. The only thoughts he has at this point in time is for the safety of his wives and children, as he ought to. But there's some irony here. Almost instantly, Jacob forgets that there already was two camps. He forgets the second camp, that God had encamped around him with a mighty host of angels. And in this world, there will be many challenges and contention with men that array themselves against God's people. We will always face enemies if we are true to Jesus. We will always face Satan's armies. Yet in the midst of chaos, the angel of the Lord encamps around his righteous. And if we are true to God, then that is true for us. One second. (laughs) To Jacob's immense credit... He turns to God in faith. And where better to turn than the Lord of hosts? That word host means a great army. You may not have heard it before, but it means a great army. And that is what God is the Lord of, a host of angels. Jacob is a different man than the boy who left his father's land so long ago. And that leads me to my second point, striving with God. Let's keep reading. Verse 9. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham, And God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred that I might do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff, I crossed this Jordan and now I've become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said... I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. So he stayed there that night. And from what he had with him, he took a present for his brother Esau, 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milking camels and their calves, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. These he handed over to his servants. Every drove by itself and said to his servants, pass on ahead of me and put a space between drove and drove. He instructed the first, when Esau, my brother, meets you and asks you, to whom do you belong? Where are you going? And whose are these ahead of you? Then you shall say, they belong to your servant Jacob. They are a present sent to my Lord Esau. And moreover, he is behind us. He likewise instructed the second and the third and all who followed the droves. You shall say the same thing to Esau when you find him. And you shall say, moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us. For he thought I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me. And afterwards I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me 
So the present passed on ahead of him, and he himself stayed that night in the camp. Now, Jacob's prayer that we just read is perhaps one of the most commendable prayers in the entire Bible, short of some of the more amazing prayers, especially the Lord's Prayer. But it is the prayer of a man of great faith and humility. Jacob's first reaction is to turn to God, as it ought to be. Proverbs 18.10 The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and is safe. Jacob knows there is no hope apart from the mercy of God. He throws himself upon the grace of God with fervency and entrusts himself and the lives of his entire family to the plans and purpose of God. He reminds God of what he had done and what he had commanded, which is great to emulate. We should do the same. He reminds God that he has returned to the promised land because that is what God told him to do. I have done, Lord, what you have told me. I have clung to your promises. But most importantly, he recognizes that he is not even worthy of the tiniest bit of grace he received. Amen. He's not worthy of any of the steadfast love or faithfulness that God has given and shown to him. Brothers and sisters, this is a prayer to emulate. This is a prayer to write on your heart, to embody, to let infiltrate all of your petitions to God. Whenever you find yourself anxious, terrified and afraid of what is to come, turn to God and throw yourself at the mercy of the one who sits on the throne. For he is good, he is holy and he is righteous. But notice that Jacob does not leave it there. He acts. Prayer is not a passive thing. Prayer requires action. We entrust our lives and our plans to God. Rather than being paralyzed with fear and indecision, Jacob decides that the lives of his wives and children are vastly more valuable than the flocks and the wealth that he has acquired. He creates three different droves, three different gifts that he sends ahead of him as tribute to his brother Esau, filled with huge amounts of livestock. And Jacob hopes that by giving him these often repeated gifts, that as Esau receives them one after the other, it'll appease Esau's anger and turn him away from vengeance. And Jacob makes sure to tell each of these droves, they belong to your servant Jacob. They are a present sent to my Lord Esau. And moreover, he is behind us. He wants Esau to know that he's coming and that he hasn't run away. And no matter what comes, Jacob will face his brother. He will trust his God and he wants to show his brother that he has confidence and belief that somewhere in that callous heart of Esau, there is still some goodness left. There is still some capacity for forgiveness. But ultimately, this plan relies on God. All of it is entrusted to God because what happens when Esau finds Jacob alone? He has just sent away all his protection. The only one who can fight for him in that moment is the Lord. What faith. It takes great faith to hold on to God and to not let go. And this is how we strive with God. And this is exactly what we see Jacob doing here. It leads me to my third point. Prevailing with God and man. Let's keep reading verse 22. The same night he arose and took his two wives his two female servants and his 11 children and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone 
And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go for the day is broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of that place Peniel, for he said, for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. Well, here we go. Jacob has made it to the river Jabbok. And the promised land is so close that he can touch it. 20 long years have led up to this moment. A quarter of most of our lifespans. And he makes sure that his wives and kids have made it across safe before he himself heads across the river. But he hesitates. And he's left alone for the first time in a long time when something completely unexpected happens. You would not have guessed what we were going to have today. A man comes out and wrestles him. At first, we're not quite sure who the man is. Uh, Surely it can't be any ordinary man because he touches Jacob's hip socket and all of a sudden he dislocates it. That's pretty impressive. Uh, Hosea 12.4 tells us a little bit where it says, uh, Jacob strove with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought his favor. So is the man an angel then? What's going on here? And yet as this story progresses to our astonishment, we find out that the man is God himself. So who is it? Is this a man, an angel, or is it God? Yes. We may never quite understand the complexity of this man's identity that is wrestling Jacob. However, in my optimism, I like to think of this man as a pre-incarnate Jesus. And this is perhaps one of the most captivating encounters with God in all of the Old Testament. It shatters our preconceived ideas and leaves us completely astonished at the way that God interacts with Jacob here. Laban marched against Jacob. Remember that. He took all his kinsmen and marched against Jacob. Esau took 400 men and marched against Jacob. And here the Lord marches against Jacob. In this moment, the forces of both heaven and earth are gathered against Jacob. All night, these forces attempt to prevail against him. And yet all night, he continues wrestling. He doesn't give up. He doesn't give in. Hours pass and this sleep-deprived, anxiety-filled, exhausted man holds on for dear life. No matter what, Jacob will get to the promised land. He will get home. Day is breaking and the man notices that Jacob hasn't given up. And the text says, verse 25, when the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Now you've got to feel for Jacob at this moment. For all his tenacity and determination, all night he wrestled with this man only for the lightest of touches to dislocate his hip. Now I can't imagine what that would have felt like. 
Any sane man would have withdrew in terror. Any sane man would have let go in pain and agony. And yet Jacob does nothing of the sort. He clings on. He will not let go, no matter what. Verse 26, then the man said, let, go, let me go for the day is broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Jacob would rather have all of his joints dislocated than to leave without a blessing. What is amazing is that Jacob has lost right up until this moment, and this is the moment he wins. This is the moment he prevails. This is the moment where Jacob receives a blessing. And so the man asks for his name. We remember what the name of Jacob means, don't we? Deceiver, cheater. That name has stood above him his whole life. That name has defined him his whole life. But no more. For from this moment, he will be known as Israel, which means he strives with God. And this tale is spellbinding because at first we, quite, we don't quite know what's going on. It doesn't yield to us the meaning straight away. God marches out against Jacob in battle, and then he allows Jacob to win this battle. This is actually a pattern in Scripture. We've already seen this in Genesis. We remember that God directed Abraham to sacrifice his only son, Isaac, only then to provide a ram in sacrifice and stop that knife from coming down. In Exodus 4, God marches out against Moses to put Moses to death, only to provide a way out through his wife moments later. In the history of Israel, God hands them over to their enemies, only to direct them to seek him for deliverance. Brothers and sisters, this is a profound mystery of the Christian faith. There are many more occurrences of this in the Bible. Uh, I don't want to go through a massive list, but the New Testament has them too. 2 Corinthians 12, 7. Paul says that God gave him a thorn in the flesh to keep him humble. We don't know what it was, but it was something physical. Something physical to him, something perhaps painful to him. And to our shock, God even marched out against the Apostle Paul. Paul prays three times that this thorn would be removed. Do you know what God said to that prayer? 2 Corinthians 12, 9, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. This encounter with God would leave Jacob with a similar thorn, a permanent limp that he would have for the rest of his day. A little reminder to Jacob of the grace that God showed to him that day. For he saw God face to face and was delivered. This grace would be sufficient because every limp that Jacob had along the road would show the kindness that God had given to him. And in this life, we find ourselves beset by many trials and temptations, even to the point where it may feel that God has marched out against you. What happened here to Jacob physically happens daily to the people of God spiritually. As we each individually and collectively wrestle with God with various trials and temptations, and the testing that we receive from God is completely different to the accusations and temptations of Satan. God tests us in different ways. As John Calvin notes, God alone is the author of our crosses and afflictions, for he alone creates light and darkness. Isaiah 45, 7, I form light 
and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does these things. God lightly fights with you, but in His mercy provides you the strength to succeed in those moments. God gives you trial and He gives you strength. God gave Paul a thorn and then we saw that He supplied Paul with the grace sufficient to overcome that trial. I don't know what crosses you bear. I don't know what afflictions you've had to face or what you will have to face, what thorns constantly stab at your flesh. And in many ways, it feels like God Himself has marched out against you and is wrestling you. Yet when God is testing the strength of your arms and the determination of your soul, look beyond that trial to the cross of Jesus. Because what the cross of Jesus shows us is that God is for you much more than He is against you. That God is for you much more than He is against you. God may challenge you with His left hand, but He strengthens you with His right hand. Isaiah 41.10 Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you, I will help you, I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. On the cross of Christ, we know what God is like, because that is God's love for us displayed in a language that we can understand. We understand that He loves us, and that He is radically for us, and that He Himself will hold on to us for all eternity. When you know this, you'll begin to understand that God's wrestling is like that of a loving father. He tests the metal of his beloved sons as he wrestles them. He gives them just enough resistance so that they can grow in strength. And at the end of the encounter, he lets his beloved sons prevail, right? Why? For they will need this strength much later in the battles that they will face as they go out into this world and face various dragons and trials. As beloved children, we can soldier on like Jacob. We can cling to God like Jacob. With metal and determination, we can prevail against the 400 strong army that may march out against you. With all of our limps and all of our thorns, with the sword of the Spirit in the one hand and the shield of faith in the other hand, with these spiritual weapons, you will prevail against God and man. Be courageous, laugh at what is to come, cling tightly to the loving God who wrestles you for your eternal good. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that you are for us much more than you are against us. Father, we thank you that as a loving Father, you wrestle with us. Lord, you provide just enough resistance to us that it strengthens us. For Father, there are many battles we have yet to face and we are so thankful that you love us enough to wrestle us. You love us enough to let us prevail. You love us enough to bring us into your kingdom as your beloved children. We thank you for this wonderful example that you have given through your servant Jacob as he physically wrestled you on that day to be a great symbol and reminder of the love that you show to us. Lord, we thank you for the trials and suffering that you give to us. Lord, teach us to rejoice in our sufferings. Teach us to accept these things from your hand 
and to win in those struggles with the strength that only you can provide by your Holy Spirit. We love you, Lord. We thank you for all your goodness. In Jesus' name, amen.